this idea that government is beholden to the people, that it has no other source of power except the sovereign people, is still the newest and the most unique idea in all the long history of man's relation to man. I think that we have a core set of values that are enshrined in our constitution, in our body of law, that are exceptional. What our framers debated that, that, that whole summer in Philadelphia in 1787. Our constitution begins with the words, we the people of the United States. That is what it means to say that we have a government of laws and not of men. Welcome back to Constitutional Conventions, the official podcast of the Yale Federalist Society. My name is Jonathan Feld, and I'm your host. I'm here with my co-host, Robert Capitolupo. And we're here for a special President's Day episode with, with uh, no other than John Yu. Uh, John Yu is the Emanuel Heller Professor of Law at the University of California at Berkeley. He's also a non-resident senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute and a visiting fellow at the Hoover Institution of Stanford University. He's a prolific writer, including his most recent book, Defender-in-Chief, Trump's Fight for Presidential Power. He's also the author of many other books and articles, including one of my personal favorites, on executive authority, crisis and command, the history of executive power from George Washington to George Bush. He also served as deputy assistant attorney general in the office of legal counsel, OLC, at the Department of Justice during the Bush administration, where he worked on issues related to national security and the war on terrorism. So Professor Yu, thank you for joining us today. Oh, it's great to be with you. I, I'm here with, looks like, 50% of the Yale Federal Society membership. <laughs> That's right. We have, we have a quorum for, for board duties. Uh, <laughs> Look, when I, was, when I was a student at Yale, we had, uh, I think one year we only had six members. So you're doing way better than we mm. are, I think. Which I guess, I guess kind of leads into to what we usually try to start with with our guests, which is, yeah, if, if you could talk a little bit about, about your career through the law, your interest in, in public interest, whether that's in academia or in public service. Uh, and especially, you know, given that you're, you're a, you know, fairly, fairly uh, conservative, I think it's fair to say. I think it's fair to say you're the most conservative professor at, at Berkeley. So what it's like, what it's like to have been in, in that position of the uh, discreet and insular minority throughout your, your legal <laughs> career, basically. <laughs> I remember joining the Federal Society uh, the first week I got to law school as a 1L. And I had majored in American history uh, in my undergraduate uh, years. And I had taken you know, the standard courses on, uh, you know, from pre, you know, colonial times to the revolution and all the way through, through the progressive era to the 20th century. And so I showed up and I got a flyer in my mailbox. I'm sure they don't have these anymore, but, you know, there used to be these student mailboxes with student groups would stick leaflets in there. And there was something called the Federal Society. I didn't know what that was, but on, on the uh, image of the leaflet, they had a profile of James Madison. So I said, I know who that guy is. So I showed up uh, to the first meeting. And like I said, I think there were about six people there. And uh, although a lot of the people who would come to Federal Society events have gone on to become very prominent uh, and successful uh, lawyers in the year, uh, particularly the uh, year ahead of me, two years ahead of me, there were uh, I think, for example, two years ahead of me, Brett Kavanaugh was two years ahead of me. And one year ahead of me, um, one of maybe Alex Azar, who became secretary of HHS, was a, a year ahead of me. And then I guess my year was the lame year. I'm trying to think of who else was in my year. Oh, Chris Ray, the head of the FBI, was in my year. So 
to many uh, other went, people, they would say Professor John Yu was in your year. No, you know, no, school, I'm, uh, so I, you know, so I had this long argument with Richard Epstein about what good we do as conservative law professors. And he, I, he, I think he gave a talk saying this later. He said, we're like a funnel. <laughs> Have you heard this? So he said, no. conservative law professors are a funnel. We sort of help identify and train people. And the funnel gets narrower and narrower, but then the all those great people come out of the bottom of the funnel, which is not the greatest image I always thought should be up. But anyway, right. Richard said down out of the funnel, and then they become like justices and cabinet secretaries and so on and so forth. And uh, I asked Richard, what's it better to be, the funnel or the water that comes out of the funnel? <laughs> so, I, so anyway, I remember going to the first Federal Society meeting, and then I went to the events. And I noticed that even though... Um, there weren't many signed up members. A lot of people came to the events who were not Federal Society members. And the reason why I think was the uh, Federal Society was very good about bringing judges. And so, you know, you'd read, and most of these judges in the cases that were taught back then usually appeared in the dissent. So it would be really interesting to uh, see and hear from these people who you're reading in the cases. Uh, usually dissent, so they were much more colorful and interesting than the majority, and got to meet a lot of judges that way too. Uh, I, uh, I uh, that year, my my year, I clerked the judge I eventually clerked for, Larry Silberman, came and spoke at the law school. Uh, I remember um, playing poker with other Federal Society members and Alex Kaczynski, who was a you know uh, even then an outrageous Ninth Circuit judge. Um, but the other important thing about it was it was an alter- really an alternative to what we were hearing in the classroom. Because uh, my memory back then, I, I bet it's not any different now at Yale, was uh, to the extent there were conservative views on uh, things like the Constitution or public law, they would mostly come from law and economists. And then most of the con law faculty I would characterize as liberals or socialists or Marxists even. And... Uh, so the only way you kind of got this alternative viewpoint, which I think now is, you know, the majority view on the Supreme Court, was by hearing outside speakers and reading their dissents and listening to their speeches. And so federal society and law school was a big part of my education, uh, in some ways much more valuable than many of the courses I took. It's funny now, now that you're kind of on the other end of that funnel, having been the product, I think, of, of the mentorship and, and now offering it. You go to a very prestigious, but but fairly well known for its progressivism. Um, you know, you know, you now teach at Berkeley, and I, mm-hmm. I'm kind of curious. You know, Berkeley has this kind of weird history in that there were some very famous members of the Republican Party who went there. I know, for example, my old boss and I guess your current boss, Robert Doerr, who's president of AI. His father, John Doerr, went to Berkeley Law mm-hmm. back when it was Bolt Hall. Um, mm-hmm. Now, obviously, it's 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 a different place than it was 60 years ago, but. What do you think the environment is there? I think you actually have a fairly cordial relationship between people of different yeah. political views there. Yeah. For, first, I would say, unfortunately, I'm not so sure the other top 10 law schools are in any way more conservative or more tolerant of competing views than we are at Berkeley. Uh, I mean, I, you know, I was uh, shocked and uh, by the you know incidents at Yale Law School last year involving free speech and you know, we have occasional protests at speakers here and there, but I haven't been to one in a long time where anyone actually tried to prevent speech and succeeded. In fact, I, I don't think I've ever seen an event at Berkeley where someone actually succeeded in preventing 
speech from occurring. But partially that's because you guys still have to learn what we know already from 50 years of this business at Berkeley, which is this is all performance theater. Right? This is not serious stuff. I mean, if you actually, we, so we have the whole regime, uh, you know, of uh, dealing with protesters and speakers. And maybe ultimately there might be someone who has to be arrested or there might be student disciplinary proceedings, but everybody knows what the rules are. And so people don't generally violate those rules unless they really want to be arrested. And then the police are happy to arrest them and take them away. And then we wait patiently and then we have the talk. Um, so I think maybe the West has been 60 years now since the Vietnam War po protests here at the Berkeley campus. So we have this much more established, I think, system for dealing with uh, nuts. <laughs> so that's one thing. And then the second thing I think is uh, Berkeley, uh, and, and I, maybe, a, I mean, I, I, yeah, I'm trying to think if there, is there really any conservative full-time faculty member at um, Yale? But at Berkeley, we have, a, we have several. Um, and I think uh, Berkeley sees as a strength. I mean, so obviously the majority of faculty are going to be progressives. But I do think they believe it's important to have some conservatives on the faculty. That's why they hired me, I think, back 30, almost yeah, about 30 years ago now. Uh, I think law school, it's no fun to, at least around Berkeley, it's no fun just to talk to yourself. It's fun to argue with other people, which is an experience I have all the time. Yeah, and it's great. We, we, we try and have that on the podcast a little bit. We just had uh, Professor David Blight at Yale, who, you know, I think he said on the show, he considers himself at least a liberal, if not, if not, if not progressive. Um, and it was a great conversation. Uh, we, if, if you haven't listened yet, uh, a plug for a prior episode. Uh, it's a really fun conversation. But yeah, I, I think you're exactly right that kind of get the benefit of the bargain by hearing views that you either disagree with or haven't heard before. And to answer your question, whether or not we have a full-time public law conservative professor, uh, we don't currently, though we did just have a, or we, I guess we are still in the midst of a visit from Professor Sai Prakash. Oh yeah, uh, my co-clerk. Who, who we are hopeful yeah. will, will stick around longer. Um, but that gets us to the meat and potatoes of, of what we're hoping to talk about today, which I think is executive authority and, and presidential power. So you know, you, you have a long career as a practitioner and as an academic. Uh, and one of the things that I think is most admirable about your work is as you alluded to, uh, it's it's very rooted in history and the kind of tradition of American executive authority and its comparison and contrast with British precedents. And I'm kind of curious just just to get your overall conception of of what do you think? And this is kind of maybe an overly broad question, so do with it what you will. What do you think the role of the American president is? Akhil Amar, for example, has has this thought that the president is. You know, one man nationally elected 24-7 is, is how he would put it in one sentence. Do you have kind of a, a one-sentence definition of, of what the president's role is in our constitutional order? Yeah, well, as you, as you said, I've um, written about this my whole career. And, um, you know, even now writing a book about Am Alexander Hamilton's constitutional thought. And the reason I was drawn to it is I, I find it very similar to the way I think. And I actually don't claim I invented anything new in what I've written. I just, you know, I think I'm repeating Alexander Hamilton. Um, so if I were to say what, you know, what's unique about the American presidency or what is it in, uh, you know, one sentence, uh, you know, the president is the you know, single office in the United States government that is always in being, that exists to respond to unforeseen events and grave crises, um, as Machiavelli said, to someone who can act immediately, he said, in one stroke, you know, someone who can act with immediacy. 
Actually, now that's more than one sentence, isn't it? But I, no, you know, no. I think yeah, I think Hamilton, you know, was right. He said in, in the Federalist Papers, you know, the uh, the executive has energy, and energy is the ability to act swiftly and decisively uh, with speed, decision, dispatch. Because you always need something, or to put it differently, if you could figure out everything that would happen in advance, and could write a law to prepare for every contingency, maybe you don't need an executive. You know, you could have just a congressionally dominated government that would just create agencies and tell them exactly what to do beforehand. But because we know life isn't like that, that you need to have an an institution that can act. So to what extent then, if at all, do you think there are situations where the president is subordinate to Congress, be it in Congress's power to declare war or in the faithful execution clause, uh, how would you adjudicate that balance of power between Congress and the president? I've always thought that both uh, uh, critics of the presidency from both the right and the left fall into this trap of thinking that the powers of the executive must be uh, fixed and the same, no matter whether it's foreign affairs or domestic affairs that are being talked about, even though I think in general, historically, they've had, um, I think, inconsistent positions. But so, for example, I think uh, for much of the 20th century, progressives or the Democrats party thought there should be a powerful executive, both in foreign affairs and domestically. So you would have the president as head of the New Deal state and taking us to Korea and Vietnam. Um, And uh, conservatives were, uh, in, in that same period, were right, critical of the New Deal state. And I think you're seeing a revival of this, you know, sort of Robert Taft. I wouldn't say isolationist. I think that's unfair, but a much more modest role for the United States in the world and for the president in foreign policy. I don't see why you can't have a president. And this is a thesis of my Crisis and Command book, which you uh, nicely mentioned. Why doesn't it? Why can't the Constitution create a president who is narrow in scope for domestic affairs? As you said, primary duty is the execution of the laws when it comes to, and maybe the only areas where you have flexibility is you have prosecutorial discretion, and then maybe ultimately uh, the power to refuse to execute unconstitutional laws. Um, but that's the only, those are the only exceptions to the general duty to carry out the laws which are passed by Congress. Why do, Why is that inconsistent with having a president that has a much more vigorous role in foreign affairs? I, so this is, actually, I started studying this when I was at, at Yale, when I was a student, because um, I was someone who came out of a training in history and was familiar, could easily use the Federalist Papers and the ratification evidence and debates, which were just becoming interesting and important to people in the law schools then. So I started working on that even then was uh, to try to really rediscover what did the founders think about the presidency. And if you look at the history of the executive and the thinkers that influenced the founders, I think that's the way they would have thought of the presidency, someone who could act with a lot more freedom and discretion abroad to stop uh, attacks on the country or to protect the national security, whereas domestically much more limited and narrow in scope. There's 
an interesting article uh, forthcoming in the Yale Law Journal by Professor Sai Prakash uh, called, uh, or I think the working title was at least called A Commander-in-Chief, making the historical argument that the president's role as a commander-in-chief does not grant any substantive authority beyond being able to um, fill in the blanks where a Congress hasn't acted similar to the commander of of any unit in the military. What do you make of that argument and how do you think the history uh, shakes out there? Well, I, you know, Sai and I have had this debate uh, elsewhere and earlier, you know, several times in different law journals. Um, even though we shared an office together clerking, I still haven't been able to persuade him about the many errors of his ways. Um, but I think I think that's a misreading of the uh, original understanding. Um, if you look at, uh, so we had this debate about the declare war clause. Does the declare war clause require the president to get a declaration of war before he or she can use force, except for uh, surprise attacks on the country? And so here's a difference. So I went and looked at how were declarations of war actually done at the time of the founding. And so, for example, uh, I pointed out for the hundred years before the Constitution, you know, the British Constitution has a declared war power in it. Nevertheless, uh, Britain only declared war once before hostilities started in the many, many wars that they fought in, including the wars in America. Uh, I actually point out the most important declaration of war in recent Americans' histories at the time of the founding would have been the Declaration of Independence. The Declaration of Independence is actually a declaration of war. It looks, if you read other declarations of wars at the time, the Declaration of Independence is actually about a year after the fighting actually started, you know, Lexington and Concord. So I didn't, that's the way I would look at it is, was, a declare, a dec, was declaring war actually consistent with, oh, this is how we start wars? And Sai's approach was to say, I think declare war is a, how would I put it, in fairness to him, is just sort of a, the way people would say start war. It's just one synonym for starting war. Um, and so I accused him of looking more at, uh, you know, common discussions rather than the legal meaning of the word. And I would say the same thing here. Sai, I haven't read the piece, but Sai might say, oh, when people say commander in chief in the 18th century, they mean this. But when I wrote my article, I said, what? What, how did the people at the time describe, what was the commander-in-chief in legal documents, uh, Blackstone, places like that? And when you look at those sources, they give pretty broad sweep to the executive's power. And now, I'm not saying that uh, Congress has no check on the commander-in-chief power, but I think it primarily arises from funding and the raising of the military. So here's a thought experiment. So in 1941, in Japan taxes in Pearl Harbor, um, a lot of Americans uh, wanted to get revenge on Japan. FDR, I think, wisely decided that the primary front in the war should be Europe. So according to the people who think the commander-in-chief power is you know, this kind of almost placeholder role, um, could Congress pass a law saying you must conduct World War II in, Pacific, in the Pacific? First, you cannot decide any questions of strategy or tactics. 
and you should leave Britain to its fate in Europe because we just want revenge on Japan. I think that would be an unconstitutional intrusion into the commander-in-chief power. Uh, instead, I think, you know, but, but Congress can affect the strategies that the president carries out by, for example, the Congress could say, we're only going to fund aircraft carriers and Marines, and we're not going to fund a large army. So you will have to fight in the Pacific. That I think Congress can do. They can try to influence strategy by what they pay for. But I don't think, based on you know what happened in the 18th century, and you look at the legal treatises, and you look at the state constitutions, you look at the discussion during the ratification, I don't think that the founders would have thought Congress could actually direct by statute what the president does in terms of strategy and tactics in a war. So just to take it to its extreme, you would say that if Congress declared war under the take care clause, the president wouldn't have a duty to wage that war? No, I don't think so. In fact, uh, I think presidents have done that. You know, that once the, the Congress can try to start a war, uh, but they can't carry out a war. It's just like a statute, right? Congress can pass a statute, but they can't carry out the statute. And so, uh, in fact, uh, this seems to me pretty set pretty early on because you look at the first real war we had, which was the Quasi War with France in 1798, and basically you had a Congress, you know, that really wanted to go to war. If they, you know, they people may not remember this. Uh, Congress actually created a huge army and put George Washington at the head of it again uh, to go to war with France. <laughs> and um, and John Adams, I think, wisely really refused to carry out any vigorous military measures in that conflict. And aside from some, a few, basically privateering, uh, he he wisely, I thought, thought that that war was in the uh, was not in the national interest. And compare that with James Madison, who has this view. So if there's a view that's much more along the lines of Congress dictates and manages war, it would be James Madison. I mean, so Madison makes this argument in the Helvidius Papers right after the founding, whereas Hamilton, I think, is much more along my views in the Pacific Pacificus Papers. So Madison, not a hypocrite. I never thought he was. And he carries out his view in the War of 1812. Congress declares the war. Madison doesn't try to influence Congress's decision. And then Congress runs the war of 1812, and it was a disaster. We, are, we came very close to the country, uh, for Great Britain, ending our little experiment in independence. And that was because Congress thought it could get away with running a war, and James Madison let them because that's, what, that's the position he had taken against Hamilton back in the Right, seventeen late seventeen eighties and early seventeen ninety, really the early seventeen nineties. I guess that actually leads into a, a broader question uh, of methodology or, or theory on your end, which is how does the authority of the president get modified over time? Right, what what is the role of historical precedents in understanding the contours of executive power? Let's say, let's say in the war powers context, you mm-hmm. talked about or you wrote about. Um, say, President Washington's decision uh, with the proclamation of neutrality. Uh, You talked about how Jefferson's main innovation was the idea of the executive prerogative. Uh, To what extent and in what ways, I guess, do you feel that those kinds of precedents help help us understand today the contours of the office? Yeah, let me uh, mention just briefly, I think, what 
the arguments were like before, and I think what they are now, which is much more focused on originalism. So I think before you had uh, actually critics of the presidency uh, who were very much scarred by Vietnam, claiming that the original understanding you know, sort of tightly circumscribed what presidents could do. You know, the classic book in this genre is Arthur Schlesinger's Imperial Presidency. And then it was, uh, I would call them functionalists, people in favor of a sort of broad uh, role, uh, uh, America's broad role in the world, who uh, said, oh, that stuff's obsolete. You can't. And then there was a class, they would say, how could you have, uh, how could you have that kind of constitution in an era of the nuclear bomb? That was basically their argument. And so I think the, the thing that I think I did uh, was uh, really to try to explain why the original understanding, not functionalism, why the original understanding did not support this idea that uh, the founders sat down and carefully drew a circumscribed circle around the presidency, but instead that they were, again, influenced by the earlier thinkers about the founding and, I mean, some about the executive power and its nature and then their experience in the colonies and then the newly independent states, their experience was that the executive actually should, and the, and its relationship with the legislature should be much more mm-hmm. flexible. And so you're right. So if you look at how does that, it, you know, executive power waxes and wanes. And my argument is that it waxes and wanes determining based on the circumstances. And so, uh, the that's how I view uh, these uh, what you call precedents or just practice. You know, things that have happened with the presidency and Congress in the past is that it just sets out almost like uh, markers, uh, battlefield markers, where uh, executive and legislative powers have met in confrontation and what happened. That doesn't mean you have to stick to it <laughs> forever in the future, but it's a guide as to you know when. You know, President Lincoln wanted to uh, take vigorous measures against the South, and Congress wasn't even in session. What did President Lincoln do? It gives you an example of what's possible under president uh, under our system, but it's not binding in the way judicial precedents would be uh, binding. And I still think that uh, that was, I think, the founders' innovation was to think of the executive power as flexible that it could expand and contract depending on the circumstances and that it wasn't, uh, right? Like as Marshall talks about in McCullough, it's not a prolex legal code that's unprepared for the future. So I think a line you just said in your last answer that the, the a question is about what's possible. I think that's really pressing. And that's, I think, how executive power has developed over, over the past century or so, it seems like courts generally are going to stay out of enjoining the president's actions, especially in foreign affairs. Um, I'm wondering if we can sort of make a distinction between the platonic idea of what is a constitutional and what isn't and what the president can get away with in practice whether you think that distinction matters and whether you think that because of the president's unique role as the sole organ of the executive branch, uh, he's 
he's able to broadly interpret the Constitution for himself and take actions necessary for the safety of the nation. I guess I think that there's no fixed line where you say, oh, um, this is constitutional, this is unconstitutional, because you, except for the, the outer bounds, because a lot of what I, this goes to the last question too, a lot, a lot of what I think is practice or has happened in the past are really just examples of what Congress and the presidents chose to do at a time and whether they chose to fight about it or not. So, uh, and by outer bounds, I mean, like, for example, Congress has sole control over the power of the purse. But at the same time, I think the president has sole control over strategy and tactics. Um, so, uh, for example, just because, um, the, say, Kosovo, the war in Kosovo, President Clinton launches an air war in Kosovo, there's uh, no declaration of war. There's no authorization to use military force. Um, that, to me, doesn't mean the war is unconstitutional. Because, to me, Congress could easily stop that war if it wanted to. Instead, Congress actually passed a special funding bill to pay for the war while it was going on. Uh, and that, So, to me, uh, that is an example where right, the presidents have you know, expanded their power because of circumstances, Congress could stop them if they wanted to use their powers. They choose not to. And if they choose not to, then the present action goes forward. And I agree with your starting point. It seems uh, beside the point to me to say, oh, well, the courts have to say whether the war is unconstitutional or not. I don't think the founders ever would have thought judicial review would extend to this, uh, this struggle between the executive and legislative branches, which just goes on, which has been going on for hundreds of years and extends back through into British constitutional history right before the founding, too. Uh, but again, I think that's foreign affairs and national security. I wouldn't say that's true of the case in domestic affairs. I think that in domestic affairs, you have this duty, right, to execute the laws, which I don't think exists with this in the same way in foreign affairs. It's interesting that, that you're talking about this uh, kind of waxing and waning of the powers between Cong- the division of powers between Congress and the president. And I think if you want a good example of that, you would look at the difference between, say, the War Powers Resolution and the AUMF. In some ways, they're kind of directionally opposite in that Congress at first tried to hem the president in when it came to mm-hmm. foreign conduct abroad. And, and the AUMF offered pretty broad authority to, to conduct military operations during the war on terror. Uh, you know, one thing you, you've, you've I've heard you speak up before is that separation of powers and checks and balances are kind of countervailing forces, right? The presidential veto is functionally a legislative power. And in the way that you're describing it, the congressional appropriation authority can help or hinder the president's ability to execute uh, military conflict abroad. Um, one of the yeah, things can, that I, Federalist- can, I, can I throw something yeah, in there on this point? Because I don't think it made clear is because we're you, you know, three of us were lawyers because most of the people write about this stuff are lawyers, they they want it to be like a legal process, right? They think of it, oh, well, here's how you pass a statute. The House does something and the Senate does something. The president executes it. The judiciary rules on it, right? That's the sort of the traditional method. And what lawyers find uncomfortable, but which I think is very, you know, just sort of the standard fare in politics is, oh, what if you don't have a step one, step two, step three process? You just give each side powers. And then you just expect them to fight it out. And there's no really right or wrong answer as a constitutional matter 
as long as neither branch actually seizes the power of the entire of of the other branch entirely. But it's just you know it's again they're just they the founders right they they say this in the Federalist Papers they, you know, ambition is supposed to counteract ambition and each branch is expected to fight to defend itself. And we have had we have a different system now where Congress generally doesn't stick up for its institutional prerogatives. I don't think that's unconstitutional, though. That's just a failure of will. That's not a failure of the Constitution. So sorry I jumped in, but that, I, I don't think I made that clear in these last two no, questions. No, because that's actually, that's actually exactly where the question was going, which is the one thing they got wrong in the Federalist Papers was the existence of political parties. And one of the expectations of, of the founders was that Congress would stick up for its own prerogatives. And in the modern day and age, I think Congress is a pretty dysfunctional branch, and it just doesn't do that. It passes the buck to the president when it's a fr- when it's controlled by a friendly party, and it doesn't when it when it's not. And, and the question was, is is this problematic? I think I think you kind of alluded to no, your answer well, there, but yeah, I don't think it is. I mean, I I you know one of the things I did in my career, uh, you, you were asking about, we never got to it, but I I did want to work in all three branches. So I think unlike many people who write about the executive branch. I actually worked in Congress too. And having worked in Congress, I don't think Congress is dysfunctional. You know, I think when Congress doesn't pass, you know, an AUMF for the Kosovo War, or when they cut off funds for the Vietnam War, they know what they're doing. <laughs> I mean, I thought Congress, it's the thing that's interesting about Congress to me, uh, being on the teaching side now, is that it's very hard to teach how Congress works. There are no good classes on how Congress works. There's no good there are books because it's hard to count things. Right? People like to count stuff like, oh, votes. and um, But Congress works in a lot of informal ways, which are hard to reduce to cases or readings. And so you, I think it's true in law school, we tend to treat Congress the way you described it as kind of like this weird dysfunctional black box. Things go in, things come out. We don't know what happened to them inside the box. But actually, I think Congress has its own way of working. And so when I see, yeah, when I see Congress, for example, not trying to stop the president, President Obama, from using drones to conduct a, you know, a, a war but via technology that's not limited by geography, really, and he, or by citizenship of the targets he's shooting at. Congress pays for the drones. They're happy to buy lots of drones. Uh, Congress never passes any statute trying to regulate the use of those drones. I think that's because Congress is happy to let President Obama do it. You know, it's a, it's, it's a conscious choice. So, and part of the reason I think that is because when I worked in Congress, if we really wanted to do something, we knew how to do it. <laughs> like if we wanted to get an agency to stop doing something, uh, I could tell you almost exactly how much funding to cut from their budget to make them do what I wanted them to do. And so I actually think that Congress... Uh, just makes a conscious choice with these series of decisions. Eh, let the president take the risk, and he can fail on this war or not. In fact, uh, yeah, one story. I, so when I was um, working in the uh, Justice Department and we were working on the Iraq War, I remember. Uh, uh, I remember that there was discussion debate about passing the authorization for the use of military force in two thousand two. Not the one in 2001, but the one in 2002. And I had, I had just a few years earlier been a Senate staffer, and now I was working in the executive branch. And I remember with surprise when people in Congress asked us to draft the AUMF for them. And I was like, okay, we'll do it. I'm happy to do it, right? We're the executive. We'll take advantage of it. But it really is your job. You're the ones who's supposed to do it. So, I, so, 
since I was the person who knew all this stuff, I was given the job of drafting it. And then I remember having to visit senators and telling them what it meant. <laughs> and I was like, and again, I'm like, this is your statute, really. You're supposed to know what it meant. The last thing that should be happening is me coming from the executive branch telling you what it meant. But they didn't want, I remember one senator said, why are you making us vote on this? And I remember saying, Senator, it's up to you whether to even introduce this or vote. We can't make you do anything. But because they didn't want to have political, they really didn't want to have political responsibility for the Iraq war. So they didn't want to vote on an authorization to use military force. So I guess that's just a long way of saying, like, I just, you know, I can be disappointed in the way Congress acts, but it's not like a failure of the Constitution. It's not a failure of accountability. They know what they're doing. And the thing, so the thing that worries me is when people write articles, like I think size writing perhaps is, so they see this, what they figure to be a defect. And so they want to rewrite the constitution and its norms to make up for the fact that Congress isn't, you know, pushing a different line from the president in terms of policy, uh, which I think would upend the founder's design of having two branches responsible for their own powers of fighting it out. I think over the past few years, we have seen the fever pitch reached of the question of where that line between executive and legislative power should be drawn through the non-delegation doctrine. Mm. Um, it's certainly possible that within the next few terms, we may see that uh, become even, even uh, more pared down. I do think, though, that it's very difficult to draw lines, to distinguish between permissible and impermissible delegation. Yeah, so that last book I actually had, which you didn't mention, which is an edited book of mine, uh, which I did it through uh, AEI with my AEI colleague, Peter Wallison. So, because I, I have your same, I think about it almost exactly the same way you put it. Um, I think there's some kind of non-delegation doctrine, but I don't know how you enforce it. No judge has succeeded in identifying a test, right? So we have uh, right, Chief Justice Marshall has that language in this case from long ago, saying, of course, there's a limit on what Congress can delegate. He doesn't find one there, and he upholds what Congress did. So we got eight or nine people together, and we just said, come up with some test. Assume there is a non-delegation doctrine. What would the test be? Just write about how a court could inf – because I think this is one of those – cases almost like the second part of the political question doctrine where because you can't come up with a judicially manageable standard no one has been willing no the supreme court has not been willing since the 30s to try to enforce the doctrine um so there's i would say take a look at this book it came out last year it's kind of interesting i think it has lots of different tests in it about how to implement the non-delegation doctrine um some uh one entry uh i thought was particularly interesting was by gary lawson also a graduate of the law school. You should get him on this uh, podcast sometime. And Gary said, why don't we take a look at what 18th century common law principal agent standards were, right? He's like, there are principal agent contracts all over the place. They must have been some case. There was case law about what agents could do and what principals could do. Why don't we just start there? You know, that that's a good idea. That's interesting. You know, you could start there. But I think this is a case where the as you say, the figuring out what the line is has scared off judges from the doctrine as a whole. I don't think that's that's the right way to approach it. I mean, right? Does that mean because we can't tell what pornography is, we're not going to enforce the First Amendment? <laughs> we're not going to enforce free speech? But, that, but that's the flavor of why we've not had a non-delegation doctrine in effect, seems to me. 
So where do you think the test proposed by Justice Gorsuch and his Gundy dissent goes wrong? Yeah, so that was actually the starting point of the book. Was we took his challenge seriously in Gundy for people who uh, obviously aren't in the weeds as much as my Yale Law School uh, uh, friends here. Uh, Gundy is this uh, very unusual case, but in this weird little case about a weird little statute uh, called SORNA, right? I think that's how it's what's called. Um, Justice Gorsuch said, uh, "There's got to be a non-delegation doctrine." And, you know, we got to figure out a test. And he gives these principles. And it's basically going back to Chief Justice Marshall's idea that Congress has to make the important policy decisions and then the agencies can fill in the details. So I would say maybe what you're seeing right now at the court is an effort to do that through this major questions doctrine, which... I agree with its critics, doesn't really have any foundation in the Constitution as far as I can see. But what the major questions doctrine really is, to me, is a kind of prophylactic rule that enforces the same values as a non-delegation doctrine. And so they're kind of using it to figure out if they could give force to the non-delegation doctrine. And so in the major questions doctrine, right, they're saying, oh, is this really an important policy question that Congress would have given to the agencies. That's very similar to this idea. Did Congress make the policy choice or is this just details that Congress expected the agencies to fill in? At the same time, the court in this major questions doctrine doesn't have to say, oh, but what we're really doing is a non-delegation doctrine. They can make it a kind of statutory interpretation canon rather than a decision of the Constitution, interpreting the Constitution. But it's really, really what they're doing is the same thing. I think, but they're doing it in a much more tentative, less permanent way. And I, I would observe um, they've gotten a lot less criticism, I think. They've gotten some criticism, but they haven't gotten the same level as they would if they'd struck down the Clean Air Act <laughs> as they, instead of just saying, oh, no, this uh, part of this global warming plan, Congress just never intended you to do that under the Clean Air Act. It's the same result, very same principles, but they're not being accused of striking down the Clean Air Act when they use the major questions doctrine. But I think that's what they're really up to is the same thing. To me, it almost seems like the major questions doctrine fits well into Chevron step two, that anything that is regulating such a vast issue is not a reasonable interpretation. But then, of course, that raises the question that it seems like many conservatives are both in favor of uh, non-delegation doctrine and the major questions doctrine, but not in favor of Chevron. And so that leaves us at a stranger uh, doc- doctrinal place. Yeah. So, you know, I, I follow administrative law. It's not my field, but I do follow the scholarship. And, uh, you know, I, I you know, personally, I find it very interesting just having practiced administrative law. I've been a clerk in D.C. and so on. And uh, having worked on the congressional side of it, um, I don't understand in a way why there's so much hammering and study about the Chevron doctrine itself. And I think it's coming to a close. I can see the court overruling Chevron pretty soon and going back to a, uh, it's just, I I just want to observe how conservative liberals have completely switched sides on this. Because if you go back and read the scholarship and cases about the early Chevron doctrine, it was conservatives who liked the Chevron doctrine because they thought it helped 
address the larger problem in their minds, which was judicial activism. And liberals thought Chevron was outrageous and took away the court's power to say what the law is. And now those positions are exactly reversed. <laughs> but, to me, but to me, it's interesting. It goes back to something you mentioned uh, towards the beginning of the interview. Uh, and I wanted to make this point too, is uh, what progressives did, I think, and why they got committed to this idea of big executive government domestically and foreign is what they did, I think, is they took wartime government, you know, the expanded presidential power, large permanent agencies. This only occurred in American history during wartime, like the Civil War. And then it would immediately disappear once a conflict was over. What the progressives did is they made this kind of mobilized government the permanent state of government. And so the Chevron Doctrine, in a way, it goes to your question you were asking much earlier, the Chevron Doctrine, in a way, was the way courts addressed the decisions of the executive in wartime, right? Very deferential. Like this is Chevron sounds a lot like the prize cases from uh, Abraham Lincoln, you know, the challenge to President Lincoln's decisions at the beginning of the Civil War. And the courts say things like, oh, well, how are we supposed to review these decisions, you know, about circumstances? You know, maybe we can make some broad legal decisions, but we can't really address the right, circumstances of facts on the ground during time of an emergency. And what the progressives did is they tried to make mobilized wartime government the way government always operated, particularly with domestic affairs. And the Chevron Doctrine is, uh, in a way, is part of that. It's a part of that sort of judicialization of this uh, and, and blessing on this permanently mobilized government. That's why I think the, the um, current Supreme Court, uh, you know, being led by Yale Law graduates on this point, you know, uh, you, you know Clarence Thomas, of course, when I clerked for, and then uh, Samuel Alito and uh, Brett Kavanaugh are really at the forefront of this. If you're really going to go back to originalism and restore the original separation of powers and apply to the administrative state, then I expect you'll see those doctrines that are borrowed from war mobilization start to disappear. And that's, I think that's what's happening right now. Well, Professor, you've been very generous with your time, and we're very grateful that you joined the program. It's been an awesome conversation. Um, if you have anything else to add, feel free. But, but otherwise, I think we'll just say thank you, and, and thank you again for your time and, and offering this great President's Day week episode. Oh, no, it's great to be with you. I'm proud of you guys for uh, you know, sticking up for the minority viewpoint at Yale. Um, as I, I say about the Berkeley Federal Sci chapter, uh, you know, Nietzsche said, if it doesn't kill you, it makes you stronger. And so you just look at your time of being a federal site member of Yale is just uh, you're like going to the gym for your brain. That's right. It's a lot of eating our vegetables. <laughs> thank you, Professor. Thank hey, you. Thank you.